Hey, yo, what's going on, fam? Thank you for liking in again. This is Clarity with TK Podcast. On today's episode, I have a fellow volunteer, someone who believes just like myself in the power of communities in modern society. Thank you, Karen, for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, TK. I really appreciate having the opportunity to talk to you and, and to your audience. I'm a nonprofit specialist. I work for nonprofits. I'm a consultant who helps nonprofits with their volunteer programs, specifically volunteers and engaging them. Because a lot of not-for-profits, they, they build up their volunteer program from the ground up. It's kind of like, have you seen those houses where somebody builds a house because it's just for a couple, but then they have some kids, so they add a few rooms here and a few rooms there, and then their grandparents come and live with them, so they add a few, and they have these really funky, wonderful houses, but they're not terribly convenient. <laughs> Right. Right, right. And a lot of volunteer programs are built that way. Oh, we need a mm. few volunteers to do this. And oh, now we need it for this and this. And they don't actually have a coherent plan. So I can come in and help streamline that, make it still as fun and, and interesting as before, but a lot more efficient. That's amazing. So how did you end up in there? And how long have you been volunteering for? I've been volunteering since I was about 11. <laughs> doing that sort of thing I went to visit my grandparents at a care home and everybody was really down because the person who called bingo for them that day wasn't going to be able to make it and they had to cancel <laughs> the bingo and I said well I can do that here I am 11, 11 years old and they said oh would you and they gave me all the stuff and so I called bingo for two or three hours and everybody was so happy and I, they, they all just loved me and I thought I like this. Yeah. <laughs> and that just started me on a lifetime of volunteering. But I got into the business of it from a kind of convoluted manner. You can't see behind me, but I have a library behind me that I built myself. I'm a trained cabinet maker. So I was in the trades for years and years. I worked for a high-end cabinet company and the environment there was a little bit toxic. And it got to the point that one end of one week I went home and I thought why am I doing this what is my purpose in life it's not to make rich people's houses fancy <laughs> okay I want to do more more for the world than that and so I, I it took a month or two to really think it over and what do I really want to do and I wanted to help not for profits and where is my experience? It's in volunteering. I've led volunteers. I've led groups of volunteers of where I had 20 people directly reporting to me and another 80 people reporting to them. And we were all volunteers. Hmm. So I've had a ton of experience doing it. And it, there is nothing more satisfying. It's a joyful thing to do. Oh, absolutely. So what types of nonprofits did you volunteer for? And what are the ones that usually catch your attention? The ones that probably attract me the most are ones working with kids and ones working with discriminatory type things, whether it's the LGBTQ community or whether it's people of color or anything like that. When I was in high school, I was bullied quite severely to the point of trying to commit suicide. So when I see bullying in the world, it, it just makes my whole body burn and I have mm. to do something about it, mm. whatever that may be. I've worked for organizations that help give other people their voice so that they can speak out about it. Or if I'm right in the field and helping people who are homeless, it's super important to me. 
because I know what it feels like to be bullied. Hmm. So do you think it's something that should be or needs to be uh, talked about a little bit more in schools and in our education systems? To some extent, there is a lot, especially in high schools, where you get credit for community service and things mm-hmm. like that. At least here in Canada, I don't know what it's like other places, and I believe it's the same in the United States. The more we can do that, the earlier we can get people involved in volunteering, mm-hmm. the more likely it is that it will stay for their entire lives. According to Stats Canada, the younger generations volunteer as a group more than any other, but the number of hours that they volunteer is far less than everybody else. So it makes me sit back and think, and that's part of what I help not-for-profits do, is what can we do to make it easier for the younger generation to volunteer more? Because in a lot of cases, we've got kind of rigid thinking about what needs to be done and how it needs to be done and where it needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Now, with COVID and all that, the where it needs to be done has kind of been shaken up and it's really <laughs> brought this to management attention. But if we can be more flexible in how things are done and when things are done, we can attract younger people more because they need that flexibility. Oh, 100%. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, we were going to touch a little bit on the topic of communities. For me, volunteers and, you know, being in these spheres is extremely important and it builds communities because, like you said, the the younger we get into that, the more likely it is for us to do it for the rest of our lives. And also it's much likelier for us to meet like-minded people, people who, you know, share the same values. I feel like communities are extremely important in how everything is done nowadays in the world. And We've seen the quote-unquote rebirth of communities after COVID or even during COVID because people realized that we were not as connected or interconnected as we thought we were. Do you feel like not-for-profits have a role to play in building these communities? Absolutely. Not-for-profits, from the experience that I've had over 25-plus years, I see each not-for-profit in itself is its own community. The volunteer groups there, they become friends. It's not just we all go to work together, whether paid or or unpaid work, we're, we're all just going to work. We have a shared passion. If you're working in a particular area, say working with disadvantaged children, for example, everybody you touch cares about disadvantaged children and it builds that community. There is a passion there. And I think what is often forgotten about when you're building communities is the idea of passion. If you all have the same passion, you are a community. There are people you haven't met who are still in your community because they have that passion. And if you can harness that, you can move mountains. And that's what not-for-profits do. On a more personal level, why did you actually get into the nonprofit field? Because I wanted to make a difference in the world. I've worked in many different industries in my life. There just wasn't, it wasn't satisfying my soul. I needed to make a difference. I volunteered the whole time. I, like I said, I've been volunteering for decades. Yes. But I needed, I needed to take the eight hours I was spending at work and use that for good as well, right? Not just do it in my spare time. It was too important to me. There's too many problems in the world. There's too many things that need help. And 
I had to sit down and decide what would be the most efficient way that I could help as many people as I could. And helping them with their volunteer programs was the way that screamed out to me. It's uh, such a selfless act. So, well, on behalf of everyone benefiting from it, thank you so much. It's, uh, thank you. It's, it's heartwarming that there are still people who want to, you know, make a positive impact. Now that we're in this post-COVID era, if we can call it that, have you noticed some new trends in the volunteering realm? A lot of trends came up during COVID itself. I noticed there were kind of two reactions in the non-for-profit world. One was, okay, let's just hunker down and wait for this to go away, right? And that would have worked if it had lasted six months. <laughs> okay, we're, we're two, two and a half years into the, the sitting down and waiting for it to be over thing isn't going to work. And I've seen, and it's heartbreaking, I have seen so many not-for-profits close their doors because they couldn't go through this. Their whole way of offering services and things like that was so focused on the in-person mm. and they didn't have the flexibility in either in their systems or even in their own minds to turn and change that. I'll give you a specific example. I'm on the board of directors for a local therapeutic riding association. So we take horses and we put disabled children on the horses. It helps with their physical thing because it helps them learn balance and things like that. It helps with their mental states. So we have kids who have autism, for example, who become much calmer and more focused when they're on the horse because you can't not do it when you're on a horse, right? right? And so it's a wonderful thing. But a lot of these kids are very unstable with physical disabilities and things like that. So they need someone to walk beside them while they're on the horse and hold them in place. Mm -hmm. right? You can't social distance that way. Mm -hmm. Right? right. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of therapeutic riding associations just canceled their programs, just tried to do a few horse-like things online and, and stuff. But ours didn't. What we did is instead of using our regular volunteers, we trained the kids' families to do that job. Mm. So people yeah. in their bubble, mm -hmm. right? All of right. a sudden became volunteers and were helping them in their in their lessons. Wow. And so we could just continue on just like anything. And it gave an extra benefit because so many of these family members found such joy in doing it that they have stayed volunteering even for other people's kids now that it's over. That's right? amazing. A lot of therapeutic riding associations closed because they couldn't do their regular programming and they didn't have the flexibility to find a different way of doing things. Hmm. So yeah, it's all about becoming more agile and adapting with the times and circumstances, right? Yeah. Since we're talking about the pandemic and everything it caused and it's been such a mental charge, but so is volunteering at times. I volunteer for some nonprofits here and I have as well in, in Argentina and even in Ethiopia. And it's it's something that can be extremely heavy on the mind, to be honest. In some parts, it's easier than in other parts. But generally speaking, it can be a weight on a person's psyche. How do you help people do what you do, bypass that or at least not feel burnt out? There's more than just burnout. Burnout's there, but I think what you're talking about is is something called compassion fatigue. 
people who are on on suicide hotlines, for example, who volunteer in suicide hotlines, or who deal with abused people, people coming out of abusive relationships. Yes. The horrible things that happen, and you see that every shift can really, you start taking that into yourself and you start carrying that with you. Exactly. And you can really have serious issues. Compassion fatigue is a terrible thing and it can really harm people. What I recommend to my clients to do when they have volunteers in situations like this, number one is to really limit the time they spend doing it. So for example, if you're on a, we'll talk about a suicide hotline. Yeah. So you have a volunteer, they come, they do four hours on the phones. And then the next shift they come, like every week they come and spend four hours on the phone listening, talking to people who were contemplating suicide. Yes. So rather than every shift they talk on the phones, one shift they talk on the phones, the next they do admin work or they do something away from that. Make sure you give them holiday, just like you would a staff member. Mm. Give them a chance to get away and relax and do something completely different. And then allow them to talk. At the end of every shift, bring everybody in and let them talk it out. Because if you can vocalize it and verbalize it, it gets it out of your system. And if you know that everybody's feeling this kind of horrible feeling from having taken on this, Mm-hmm. You know it's shared and you know you're not alone and it's easier. Mm. So time away and the chance to talk it out um, will make a huge difference. Burnout, if we want to talk about burnout, which is more, I've got too much to do and I can't keep up, that feeling of overwhelm, yeah. that is squarely on the shoulders of the volunteer manager. Whoever is in charge of the volunteers needs to be aware of giving people enough time, either making sure you have enough volunteers so that you don't have a handful that are just loaded down and training your volunteers well so that you can feel comfortable giving whatever task to anybody on the team. And that'll help with burnout. That needs some serious leadership skills. In your experience, do you feel like most coordinators have that that type of skills? No. Unfortunately, In the not-for-profit world, volunteers are often talked about as in, oh, we couldn't do anything without our our volunteers. Our volunteers are wonderful, the rest of it. But when it comes to actually investing in them, like hiring somebody who really knows what they're doing or training, training their volunteer coordinator, anything like that, they're not willing to invest the resources into getting somebody who can really get the best out of their volunteers. Hmm. There's a a mind block in there. Volunteers aren't free. And I think a lot of not-for-profits think of volunteers as being free. They're free help. And it's not that way. Not if you want good volunteers. What do you mean they're not free? What do you mean exactly? If you want volunteers who want to who want to stick around, who, who are really good at what they do, who you can just drop things on and they'll deal with them, you have to train them. Mm. You have to make sure that they're well managed. For sure. In other words, you have to pay a volunteer coordinator who knows what they're doing. The role of volunteer coordinator tends to be considered as something rather lower down on the corporate ladder, if you would. And yet they are dealing with some of the major issues of of leadership, Mm. uh, conflict management, 
scheduling, organization, all of these leadership skills, your volunteer coordinator or your volunteer engagement specialist, whatever you want to call them, they need these in spades and yet they're not being trained in it and they're not being paid well enough to get the training themselves. You need to invest in this and invest in your volunteers. Yes, you don't have to pay your volunteers, but you have to invest in them. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It makes perfect sense. That's why I mean that they're they're not free. Back to your point. So what, in your opinion, makes a good volunteer coordinator? Well, first of all, you have to love people. (laughs) You have to be organized. Yeah, I mean, I've known ones who aren't, but you can't do it. They're just not terribly successful. You have to be organized. You have to have... People skills, not not just in the sense of getting along with everyone, but you have to be able to read people. Hmm. Emotional intelligence, right? Yes, exactly. Somebody's getting burnt out. I can I can tell that they're emotionally not where they were a month ago. I need hmm. to sit down and have a talk with them. When you're interviewing a potential volunteer, someone who's applying to volunteer, you need to be able to talk to them and learn enough about them that you can say yes, this person will fit. They're, they match our culture. They're going to be there. They're not going to come in and cause trouble. That's, that's a hard thing to do is to be able to read people that well. That's another thing you have to be good at. And like I said, organization, time management, that sort of thing is, is key because there's a lot to do and never enough time. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like, you know, some of the skills of the future, if we can call them that, are soft skills. They're not technical skills. It's human to human, basically, H to H, because we talk a lot about business to business, business to consumer, but human to human is definitely not talked about enough. And it should, because those are the things that make successful teams. And teams are what builds companies, organizations, whatever it may be. It's funny, I tell tell this to people who are hiring for staff positions too, is it's higher for attitude, not for skill. Skills can be trained. Attitude. Exactly. Exactly. Right. A hundred percent. Couldn't agree more. So as a volunteer, I don't always want to do certain types of tasks, you know, because sometimes you're just tired. Sometimes you just don't feel like it. How would you, as a volunteer coordinator, help me see the good in that not so fancy task that I am supposed to do? <laughs> I see this a lot. And there's two ways of doing it. People volunteer because they want to make a difference. Right. right? They need to see that the task they're doing leads directly to the mission. Mm. If you're helping children and you're in the office filing, how does that help your organization help children? Draw that line between what the exact task and what you really want to do. If you can draw a clear line that way, those tasks become a lot a lot easier. And if you can't draw that line, then you need to ask yourself why you're doing it. Right. Right? 100%. The other thing is, and this is something I see a lot. So for example, animal shelter that I work with, they had tons of people, like hundreds of people come in to walk the dogs and the staff always had to clean the kennels. Nobody wanted to clean the kettles, right? 
So we just everyone wants to play with the dogs. <laughs> Everybody wants to play with the dogs. Exactly, exactly. And and you can't blame them. I mean, who wants to see the kennel when you can when you can play with puppy? So what we did is just mix it up. Okay, you want to come and take the dog for a walk? Great. This is how it works. You go in, you clean their kennel, you take them for a walk, you bring him back, mm-hmm. you give him fresh water. Process. That's just how it's done. Yeah. And because you're only cleaning one kennel, it's not a big deal. Hmm. Whereas if you're asking someone to clean all the kennels, yeah. Yeah. it's a huge thing. Of course. And you know, then all the volunteer management people have to do is, is just check that it was done well enough. Right? Right. Just little things like that. Mix it in with wow. things that are fun. Sounds so simple and yet so effective. People don't think about that. They see tasks as individual things and don't mm. see how they could be mixed together. Before we wrap this up, I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into communities and community building and the importance of communities. Before the show, we talked about, what was it again? It takes a village to it raise a child. It takes a village to raise a child, exactly. And so communities are all about that. And they are all about raising good children. Children that will also give back their time and they will give back in effort and they will uh, try to build their own communities and help them prosper. Where did we lose sight of that? And how can we go back to, you know, living in communities? I lived in New York at some point. That was like late 90s, early 2000s. And I remember that the sidewalk, for example, was a hub for communities. There was so much life going on on the sidewalk. And for me now, when I think back and I think about my childhood, I'm super grateful that I had that because I built genuine relationships and I've learned so much from, you know, the other kids and the other grownups as well that I was definitely in touch and in contact with every day. Why did we even lose that in the first place? In my opinion, and and I'm no specialist in this, part of it is the whole change in lifestyles. The whole idea of your entertainment is inside now instead Mm. of outside. I'm a fair bit older than you, but when I was a kid, we get up in the morning, we were fed back, but then we were kicked outside. We didn't sit in front of TVs. We didn't have VCRs or, or video players or gaming consoles, anything, we we got kicked outside, hmm. right? We played outside because that's what you did. Mm-hmm. I think with all the technology, the entertainment technology that people are getting, people tend to stay inside more. And you can't build community when you're inside, isolated from everybody else. Of course. That's part of it. Part of it, I think, too, is when I was growing up, my cousins were some of our closest friends because we all lived in the same community. And that doesn't happen very often anymore. We have become a much more mobile society. My mom has lived in the same little tiny town (laughs) since she was born. And a lot of people, you, you just don't hear that anymore. I lived here for two years and then I lived here for four years and then I lived in this other city, right? Right. People just keep moving. And when you do that, you pull apart all those threads of community. Oh, you may keep one or two close friends that you talk to on a dis- at a distance, but for the most part, we can just keep uprooting all those community roots and try and transplant them in different places. And there's only so many times you can do that until you start turning all those roots inside and you just try and be strong just by yourself because you don't have a community anymore because you keep moving. So I think that's part of it. That and the fact that we're always inside is we've lost that. 
those are the two things that I see most about why we've lost that community. How we get it back is the opposite. Get outside more. Find your entertainment outside in the community. There's certain cities that are really good at this. New York's probably one of them. Vancouver, I know, is really good at it. Is They have community building spaces, like a, a place where there's a giant chessboard set up, right, right? right? And people can just come and hang out and play chess with strangers, right? Yep. Or, or different things like that. Just that will attract people into a group, people that you'd never met before. And mm. through that, we can start building community. Join clubs. I was involved in an organization called Toastmasters, which is a public speaking and leadership organization. And through that, I can go just about anywhere in the world now and find a community through Toastmasters. Wow. So join the club that has something that you enjoy doing about it and get involved in that. And that'll help build community for you. But you have to make an effort. We got to get out there and do these things, like you said. What you said was super interesting about how we're very mobile now. That being said, in the end, we're also losing sight of other important aspects of life, which is connecting with others. And I feel like we still haven't found the right balance. Despite what we see on TV, and I don't believe what I see on TV for most part, I feel like the, the world is a better place in terms of discrimination and racism, although the news doesn't show it that way. On the other hand, I still feel like we're losing some other aspects that could and that should be paid attention to. Absolutely. It's time for people to take back their lives in a sense and to go back to harvesting meaningful relationships with each other. A lot of depression and mental health issues are skyrocketing. And part of it is because we don't have that community anymore. Yep. Don't reach out. We don't have that human we connection. We don't reach out. That's the word. We need them. We need those human connections. We're designed for them. Uh-huh. And without them, we suffer. Yep. No man is, is an island. So we cannot live in solitude. And like you mentioned before, now that we're moving around all the time, you lose sight of friends. Maybe you keep in touch with them, but talking to a friend on the phone is not the same as talking to them face to face. You lose that human connection, you know, the chemistry, which is something that you build through talking to people in real life and not just seeing them from afar or talking to them at once every three months. You know what I mean? I know exactly. It's, it's, it's the slap on the shoulder, the hug, and the just being in the same room. It's different than chatting with them on Zoom. It's, it's a different feeling. Exactly. Super, super interesting. So thank you so much for sharing all your tips. Communities definitely need to be at the forefront of everything we do. And they are, for me at least, a pillar of society. And they are the cornerstone of interconnectedness. And they are society. They are society. We don't have a society. We're just a bunch of people in a Living in solitude. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Thank you for all the knowledge that you shared. And for being up right late. Thank you so much, TK, for having me. There you have it, folks. Thank you for tuning in again. And until next time, peace.